The story of Jesus is such that it could not possibly have been made up. This was the premise of last week's uh, assembly service, and it is what we're going to be talking about this morning as well. So, that is not my PowerPoint for this slide. Let's try that again. I guess we're going to want the worship one. Let's try that. Huh? Uh, Okay. Let's see. This is announcements. Sorry about that. All right. Well, we have the same PowerPoint for both. Thank you. Yes. All right. So we've been tackling the premise that the story of Jesus could not possibly have been made up. Last week, we discussed the idea that there are a lot of skeptics out there who believe that the story of Jesus is a fish story, that it grew from being uh, Jesus was just an ordinary teacher to uh, greater and greater and greater until Jesus was God himself come to earth. And we talked about the idea that uh, if that is true, which we think is very skeptical, uh, that it it couldn't have happened over the 300-year timeline that they put. It had to have happened by the time that Paul wrote Galatians, which is 20 years, not 300 years. And so we spent all of last week creating the groundwork for the fact that this story of Jesus, whether it is a real story or a fake story, happened within the span of 20 years. And that is, lays the foundation, thank you, for the idea that this is not the sort of thing that, I don't have my clicker anymore. Uh, <laughs> thank you. This is not the sort of thing that could have been made up. So we talked about how Jesus has always been considered God, and this week we're going to be taking on three basic uh, statements from the text. We're going to be looking at the story of Jesus and say, could this have really been imagined? Could someone really make this up? So the first one that I want to show you is the idea that Jesus defies culture. In any story, you have to have a culture that it comes from. For example, I was, I was thinking about this morning, uh, a story that we would all know, The Little Engine That Could. It's a classic children's story, and what's the point? I think I can, I think I can, and if you think hard enough, you can get to the top of the hill. It's a very American ideal, a very uh, American dream idea, and as it would happen, the story was written by a Hungarian guy who moved to the U.S., started his own business. That's, that's the American dream, and that's the story that he wrote. This story takes place within the culture of the American dream. Or you might think, uh, I was watching a television show the other day, and uh, the whole episode was kind of, uh, there's like a boss, and he's like this, you know, really strict and kind of uh, uh, silly Christian. They like to make fun of him, and it's, it's a sad part of this show. And there are some gay people that come in, and the, the point of this, this episode, very much uh, the you know, American California worldview, that, you know, Christians are dumb and that gay people need to have equal rights. And this is a story located within its cultural context. Or you take a a true story, uh, the idea 
uh, George Floyd. This huge thing, it blew up, crossed our nation. But this is not the first time that someone of color has been killed. This story became famous because of the time it happened. Because finally, this story, this important information had weight. And that takes me to something I want to talk about before we introduce the, before we go through these, this cultural question, is what is it that makes a story successful? Whether it's a true story or whether it's a made-up story, what does it take for a story to take hold? And it takes three things. Uh, and if you're you know, into rhetoric, it's ethos, pathos, logos. Uh, and if you're not, uh, it is that it takes knowledge. You have to have culturally relevant knowledge or at least knowledge of what you're talking about. You have to have a reason for wanting to say that, a motivation behind it. And you have to have some sort of clout, a reason that someone would believe you. And I am going to talk in this point about the idea that the story of Jesus does not fit neatly into any culture. It doesn't make sense as the product of any sort of cultural thinking. And any sort of tiny subculture that you could think of does not have all three components, the motivation, the knowledge, and the clout behind it. Let's talk about a Jewish origin, because it would make sense that if we're talking about Jesus, a Jewish carpenter, that maybe the Jews came up with this story. But as you read some of the things that Jesus says, it becomes very clear very quickly that Jesus is very very countercultural in a Jewish world. For example, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this flock. So here, he's already talking about the Gentiles, which the, the strict boundary lines between Jews and Gentiles is, goes with circumcision and food laws as something that is critically important to the Jewish culture. So the fact that Jesus would be crossing that line is really kind of shocking. Or the fact that Jesus has no qualms about going toe-to-toe with the Sadducees. He tells them, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Or the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus will call out anybody, and he does not seem beheld to these Jewish social conventions. Let's look at a few more texts. So, for example, strictly in the Jewish mind, they will be keeping the law of Moses. And these purity standards are really important to them. And so when we have a a law, like in Leviticus 17, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. This was so important to the Jews that they even bound it on the Gentiles in Acts 15. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from, among many things, blood. And yet we find on the lips of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, my, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, obviously, on one hand, we're talking about physical blood. On this hand, it's kind of a spiritual thing. But at the same time, this is a shocking metaphor. And the fact that Jesus would use it sets him very much at odds with the Jews. In fact, all of his followers, except his apostles, leave him after he says this because they can't believe that Jesus would say something like that. And so... This, and one more example, Matthew 5, and this is just one of many times in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, list some law of Moses, but I say to you that everyone, every man who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That Jesus 
just disregards in some ways. He builds on, he changes, he fulfills. But in many ways, he just runs over the law of Moses. And this is crazy. It it does not make sense for any sort of mainstream Jew to write a character like this, especially one that they want people to follow. And so you sort of think, Jesus, he's, he's outside the lines of what you would expect from a Jew. In fact, that's why the Jews don't like him, the Pharisees don't like him, the Sadducees don't like him, the Jews eventually kill him. Plus, if you read this story, this isn't just, uh, you know, it's, it's different from their culture. They also wouldn't want to write the story of Jesus. I mean, who is the bad guys in the story of Jesus but the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees? And so unless we're talking about a very, very tiny group, maybe like, you know, maybe Jesus came from, you know, the Essenes or some of the, the tinier sects, but they don't have the clout, the ethos, the, the social power, the believability to sell a story like this. And so it becomes very difficult to argue that Jesus came from a, the mind of a Jew. His story does not fit neatly into Jewish culture. But that leaves us with the Gentiles, and that makes even less sense, because as much as Jesus doesn't fit into Jewish culture, he is clearly the product of Jewish culture. I mean, have you read the Old Testament? Look at uh, you know, Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 53, or like dozens of other passages where Jesus clearly intends to fulfill the Old Testament, where he says he has come to fulfill the law of Moses. Jesus is heavily based on the Old Testament. And so if he is a made-up character, we're imagining that he is very different from Jewish culture, yet at the same time integrally tied to the Jewish texts. And he is the son of the Jewish God. And so if we're going to say that Jesus is a made-up character, then we're going to have to imagine, again, remember our, our little triangle, that well, if, if he came, if he is the son of God and he came to fulfill the law of Moses, then we need somebody who is motivated to serve God, motivated to love God, and has the depth of knowledge that would be required to write a story like Jesus. And that is is believable enough. But it's hard to imagine somebody writing an additional God if they believe so thoroughly in Yahweh God. And so you think, okay, well, that, that doesn't quite make sense because why would you totally deny the Old Testament if, you're, if you believe so strongly in it. I think that's the kind of person that it would take to write this story. But there are other elements of this, the anti-Jewishness, that would need another kind of person, a kind of first century Jewish Bart Ehrman, who is like angry at the Jews and he has the depth of knowledge, but he wouldn't have the motivation to write this story either because he doesn't believe in God. And so we have these, these three elements. You need to have the believability, you need to have the knowledge, and you need to have the motivation. And it doesn't make sense to postulate any sort of culture or subculture that exists that would have the reason, that would have the, the reason and the believability and the knowledge to write the story of Jesus. Jesus he doesn't fit into any culture neatly. And this is still the case today, but it makes Christianity is something that is very, very unique and interesting. 
Because Christianity is a worldwide religion today. If you look at, for example, Islam, it is a Middle Eastern religion that is Middle Eastern. If you look at Hinduism, Hinduism is an Indian religion that is Indian. And if you look, I, I spent a significant amount of time on Excel last night calculating these numbers. There are 18 countries worldwide where Hinduism has a population of more than 2%, which is you know, not a very significant amount at the bottom. But anyway, 18 countries, every single one of them is either in India, very close to India, or one of the countries that Britain took Indians out of and put them into another country. Because Hinduism is, cult is culturally very tied. But Christianity is not that way at all. Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion that moved to Europe and is now in Africa and Asia and in the Americas. If you look at the top seven populated America, uh, the top seven Christian, the most Christians in the world, the seven countries are the US, Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, Russia, the Philippines, and Ethiopia. Now, those are dramatically different cultures. And yet Christianity, despite the fact that Jesus and his story defies Jewish culture and Gentile culture, there's something about it that breaks down cultural barriers in a way that no other religion is able to do. And that is because it is universally offensive and yet universally adaptable. I mean, we think about the fact that God is a God of justice and mercy. And there are really not very many cultures that hold both of these as important. Like in our Western world, we're kind of upset that God would send people to hell. And there, you know, so a wide group of people out there who don't think that that should be the way that God operates. And yet that's a very Western idea. If you go to the East, for example, very different. They're going to be upset that God doesn't punish people. They'll be like, mercy, what is that? Why would they do that? These two aspects, which are both aspects of who God is, are offensive in different cultures. We in America and in the West, we're kind of against the idea of the supernatural. But if you go to Africa, they very much believe in the supernatural. If you talk about truth, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. It's objective, one way of truth. That is not an Eastern way of thinking. And so we have these things about Christianity that defy any culture that, that existed or exists now. And yet somehow Christianity takes hold in every culture. It's amazing. And the only way that I know how to, to explain that is that somebody who is not tethered to any sort of culture or any sort of time created the story of Jesus, and that would be God, who, who is Jesus and came and lived a life exactly the way that the scriptures tell us. Now, I mean, is that a solid ironclad argument? No. But you think about it. You think about the people you know, the stories you have read, and it is hard to believe that Jesus is a story that could be made up, that his teachings are something that could be imagined by any sort of mortal man. It has to be divine. That's the only way I can think about it. I'll take you to this next argument. It's pretty similar. Is that Jesus lacks a myth maker. We talked about culture in general, but let's talk about specific people. I'm thinking about Peter, Paul, and James specifically. I mean, these are like the big names in the early church. And yet, none of them make sense as the origin for Christianity. 
Like, you're going to pick Paul? Paul was murdering Christians. Paul clearly did not invent Christianity. James, pretty similar way. I mean, James does have, I mean, Paul has a depth of knowledge that would allow him to do some of these things, but obviously that won't work. He doesn't have the believability. James is kind of similar. He is Jesus' brother. So he knows Jesus better than anyone, except that he didn't follow him when Jesus was on earth claiming to be God. And so James doesn't make sense as the origin of Christianity because he didn't believe Jesus in his time. That leaves us then with Peter. And Peter, along with the other apostles, have the believability because they, lived with, they, they walked with Jesus for several years. They learned his teachings. And yet they don't really have the motivation or even arguably the knowledge to create a story about Jesus. I mean, you read the Gospels. The apostles are constantly confused. It's part of the narrative of almost all of the Gospels, that there are like Gentiles and random people who understand Jesus better than his own apostles. And for one, for them to write that doesn't make sense, because if I'm making up a story, I'm going to be the guy that knows everything. But two, if, if that's the case, if they, if, that, if they really did not understand Jesus in his own time, then how could they mythologize him to the point where he is God? That doesn't make sense. And so I think it's very, very unlikely that these guys came up with the story of Jesus. But I want to point this uh, for a moment to a specific teaching, a specific integral part of Christianity that is not necessarily a teaching of Jesus, but a teaching of Christianity. And that is that the Gentiles are accepted into God's kingdom. Now, Jesus, of course, laid the foundation for this. But when Jesus was on earth, it was the lost house of Israel. Those were the people that they were trying to seek. And so where did this idea of Gentile acceptance come from? Well, again, did it come from Paul? No, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul would not invent something like that. It makes very little sense. James is the same way. James has a hard time even after it's revealed that Gentiles can be accepted and they don't need circumcision. He's still associated with the circumcision party and with the Judaizing teachers. Now, whether that was something he believed uh, is uh, up for debate, but he is definitely rolling with that crowd. So it makes very little sense that James would be the origin of the idea that Gentiles are accepted in the kingdom of God. Peter, same sort of way. We get, to, we get uh, Galatians 2, where Peter has a, a tough time with the idea that Gentiles are accepted into the kingdom of God. And so he doesn't make sense either uh, because he's falling back on old ways. Now, you could make sense of that by maybe like the story that Luke tells us that Peter received a vision and that Peter you know, understood that God was telling him the truth and that Peter, being a man, he struggles with changing his culture so dramatically, but he believes God and so he does it. That makes sense of what Peter does and what James does and what Paul does. But what doesn't make sense is that they created it because none of them have the motivation to do that. And anybody who did have the motivation to do that would have to get through these three guys who are apparently making up the story. No, that doesn't make sense either. And so it's very unlikely then that we can think of any specific person. And the reason that this is powerful is because of the, the foundation we laid last week. Because nobody in the skeptical world is arguing that, that Paul, James, or Peter created the story of Jesus. But they're saying that this story evolved over hundreds of years. And we're saying, no, it didn't. That Paul and, and John have fundamentally the same theology. And so if 
Paul believed the same thing that John did, then there is no question that the early Christians within 20 or 30 years of the death of Jesus believed what we have written down here. And if that's the case, then it has to be one of these guys or a, another huge name, which I don't know who that would be, some you know, mysterious puppet master behind the scenes. No, like these are the guys, these are the options. And if it's not one of them, then it's hard for me to imagine that we can come up with a person who could have created the story of Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a myth maker. Now, finally, I want to argue that Jesus defies messianic stereotypes. That if you were going to invent a fulfillment of the Messiah, you would not write Jesus. Uh, for one, they, none of the Jews were expecting Jesus to fulfill the prophecies the way he did. I mean, they were expecting an earthly king. Now, you could maybe argue that uh, they were originally going to write Jesus as an earthly king, but then obviously that didn't happen, and you can't really contradict uh, obvious, you know, they're still ruled by the Romans, so you can't outright that, so you got to make up something else. And so, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you can argue that. But still, I, I've got three points to show you that even so, Jesus is not the kind of character, not the kind of Messiah you would invent. He has to be real in order for people to have followed him. First, let's talk about Jesus is an unlikely sort of teacher. You've had your Bibles closed for a long time. That's my fault. Turn to Mark, no, Matthew chapter 19. We talked about this earlier, but we're going to zoom in on it now. Matthew 19. This is uh, Jesus teaching on divorce. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Look what Jesus does here. He says, Moses said that, but... Moses didn't mean that for all time. So I'm here to tell you, I'm here to set the record straight. This is the teaching. And that takes a tremendous amount of, of social power, of people believing in him, because Jesus is here contradicting the law of Moses. He says, Moses didn't know. I'm going to tell you what, what, this, what the truth really is. And not only did Jews not teach like this, like if you were to read like a, a Jewish commentary, they'd be like, you know, Rashi says this and Rabbi whatever says this, and they're constantly quoting other people. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, this is what I'm saying. And Jews don't teach that. We don't talk like that. Like, for example, if I were to try and tell you, like, uh, you know, you should pour boiling water on your plants. That's going to help them grow. You'd be like, why, why would I do that? that? That makes no sense. I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm just telling you. I, you've heard, but I'm telling you, you got to pour boiling water on your plants. And you'd be like, well, do you have any, like, credentials to show me? Are you, like, a, a botanist? Or, no, no I'm, I'm just saying it. Like, Jesus... He, he didn't go to school. He's not, he didn't study under Gamaliel. Jesus is just a guy walking around saying, this is what I say. And no one would believe him 
If he were not telling the truth, if he were not the son of God, if he did not have the miracles to back it up, no one would believe him because this is not how you teach. And yet Jesus taught like this and people believed him, followed him in tremendous numbers because Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Let me show you another reason. Jesus defies messianic stereotypes because he's not interested in really getting a following. I'll take you to two passages. I'm talking about a third on the way. Uh, Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus does uh, a lot of things that would be big no-nos if you were trying to get earthly people to follow you. First, he calls Levi to be a tax collector, uh, who is a tax collector, to be his apostle. Then he's reclining a table with the tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees are like, why is he doing this? Because obviously, this is a big taboo. And then later on in chapter 2, Jesus is walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, getting food, and he clashes again with the Pharisees. And then we get to chapter 3, where Jesus seems to heal a man just to stick it to the Pharisees. Jesus is not interested in playing by their rules. He's not interested in amassing a following because of, you know, by, by playing by society's rules. Jesus is just doing his authentic self. We'll turn to John chapter 7, and as we're on our way, we'll talk about John chapter 6. We mentioned this earlier, but when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and life. When he says, well, actually, no, that's, that's later on. When Jesus says what he says in, in, in John 6, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. The people are like, what? And also in that chapter, he says, you're not following me for the right reasons. Just why are you following me at all if you're just gonna eat the bread? And so they, it caused an uproar. They all leave and his apostles are the only ones left. If you were a teacher that was trying to get people to follow your fake religion that you're imagining, or if you're inventing a Messiah, he doesn't do these kinds of things. But Jesus did. John 7, his brothers ask him, uh, it says in verse 4 of John 7, uh, well, sorry, we'll start in verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. But then Jesus responds and says, it's not my time. I'm not going. To, I'm not going. His brothers are saying, look, if you want to get famous, you got to do your works in the open so people can see you. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> like, Jesus is not interested in doing the things that are going to get him followers. This is not the Messiah you would write. This has, but people did follow him. And the reason is because he was authentic, because he was who he said he was. That's the only way that makes sense to me. Lastly, uh, and we'll say this briefly. uh, Oh, wait, no, we got time. Sorry. Uh, Jesus is a strange model for what you would invent if you were going to create a Messiah. Um, So obviously, uh, Jesus suffered in all ways as we did. Jesus lived perfectly. And if we want to follow God, we should emulate Jesus. Like, that is absolutely true. But also, the Jesus that we read about in scriptures also has many things that we do not have and lacks many of the qualities that we are called to have because of the fact that he is divine. I'll explain this. So, for example, Jesus, uh, you know, think about the teaching of Paul, for example. Like, it's a huge, maybe the biggest thing that Paul teaches is that you got to stop trying to live a self-justified life. you got to lean in faith on God because you're a sinner, and that's the only way you're going to get salvation. And Jesus just shows up and lives a perfect life. Like, <laughs> that's crazy. 
Jesus does not follow what is the, our basic thing that we're supposed to do, which is lean in faith. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, speaking of faith, Jesus teaches his disciples to have faith. Paul teaches his disciples to have faith. But it is never once said of Jesus that Jesus had faith. And you might think, well, that's really weird. But actually it's not because Jesus is God. Jesus was in heaven with God. And if you have sight, then you can't have faith because you can't believe in something that you've already seen because then it's not belief, it's sight. Jesus didn't have faith because he was God, because he lived in heaven with God, one with God. And so if we're called to have faith, if we're called to uh, lean in faith on God, Jesus didn't do any of those things because he didn't have to. Similarly, we're called uh, in, in Romans chapter 12 to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Jesus didn't do that. He was perfect all along. Or um, we're, we're told, you know, we got to study our Bible. we got to really, really dig in. Jesus didn't have to do that. He just knew stuff because he wrote the story. Jesus is the designer behind this whole thing. And so if you're trying to create somebody that you're like, this is the guy we're going to follow, you wouldn't write Jesus because he, he doesn't have these really important things that we're called to have because he's so much better than that, because he is divine, because he is just beyond that. And so if you're trying to invent a Jesus, if you're trying to create a Messiah, Jesus, the one that we read about in scriptures, is not the one that you would write. And the reason that people did follow him, the reason that people did believe in him, is not because he was an elaborate literary figure. It is because he actually existed, because he actually walked the earth, because he actually was who he said he was. Now, if people don't want to believe that, they're not going to, and, you know, that, that is that. But as I'm thinking about this, and again, these aren't ironclad arguments, but I'm really hard-pressed to think of any way that this story could come about unless it was actually true. Jesus, he defies culture. He doesn't have someone to invent this story. He doesn't fit into the messianic stereotypes that you would expect. He's just different. He's unexpected. And that's precisely what we see. I'll set the stage a little bit for what I'm going to talk about in the, next, in the, in the third hour. That the story of Jesus, the plans that God had were a mystery. Everyone wanted to know what was going to happen. Because Jesus is unexpected in so many ways. And as we go out in the world and we talk to people, they become kind of jaded to Jesus and jaded to his teachings because they've sort of become a part of our culture. But Jesus is so refreshing, so different, so unique to the point that I I don't see any reason, any way that he could have been made up, that some you know, Galilean carpenters in secret created a story that somehow got corrupted into four unique gospels, all highlighting different parts of Jesus, but all in perfect harmony with each other. None of them claiming that Jesus like had faith or any of those things that you might think to put in there if you were making the story up, uh, but that would actually undermine the story. This, This character, this amazing person, not to mention all the other people in the story, Peter and Thomas, who are also consistent across the gospels, This character, who is better than any literary character than anyone who's ever come up with, was created in secret, corrupted, and then somehow that's what we have. I I am hard-pressed to believe that. And so, like I said, 
people are going to believe what they want to believe, and, and we can show them this, but I, I want this to be about you. Take these truths. Be amazed at God, at Jesus, this God that we serve, at who he was, at the example he sets for us, at the uniqueness of him, at his unexpectability, at his inconceivability. Be astonished at the God that we serve and let that zeal, let that joy, let that awe push you to serve the Lord even more in the coming week. Thank you so much for your time. We'll now be dismissed to class.